Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, happy Easter, as you, you can tell, I dressed up for you. Uh, when, I, when I quit practicing law, I swore it would, it would take some kind of bribe or a weapon of some sort to get a necktie back on me. Uh, no, thank you. Um, so, as you know, Andrew alludes to with our kids, one of the things we're doing with our kids is we, we really had a successful run. Kayla Wolf, who is our children's minister, uh, put together this curriculum uh, based upon uh, J. Warner Wallace's Cold Case Christianity for Kids. And J. Warner Wallace, who I'll be talking more about this morning, he's been here to this church several times and spoken. He was a uh, cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles for 30, 40 years. And he is, his wife became a Christian. He came from a background of atheism, considered himself an atheist. And he said, now look, don't, you can't just rush into this. So he took the Bible, specifically the New Testament, <clears throat> and really the Gospels. And he read through them as a cold case homicide detective. He said, I think I can prove this is not true. And after about six, seven, eight months of doing this, he became a Christian. And this happens all the time. So we have seen a real epidemic over the last 10, 15 years of kids being raised in the church, going off to college, leaving the faith, and not coming back. Actually, right now, you used to hear 70%. Now it's closer to 80%. And so we decided to do something about it. And one of the things that we are doing is we are teaching our kids not only the core of the faith, but how to defend the faith. So we went through cold case Christianity with the kids. The kids loved it. So Kayla wanted to keep the ball rolling. And with Easter, what a better time to kick off a second round of this. So now the kids are back there learning the case for Christ for kids by Lee Strobel. And we have been selling these. We sold out. But if you haven't got one, you should. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I know you're saying, well, I've seen the movie. Okay, this is different than the movie. In the movie, you see Lee Strobel, another person who tried to disprove Christianity and ended up becoming a Christian. This happens a lot if people take it seriously and they dig down. Happened to C.S. Lewis. And so, but in the book, he talks about how he would go from... Uh, expert to expert to expert, and he would drill them, and he went to Yale Law School, so he knows how to really grill people, and he'd grill them on this stuff, and lo and behold, all of his questions were answered, and that's what the book is about, these interviews he had with these experts, so you should pick it up, especially if you have kids or grandkids or whatever, you should be able to, you should read this book so that while they're doing the kids version, you can have conversations about it. We cannot disciple your kids in an hour and 15 minutes a week. You guys have to do that yourselves. And so that's what this series is about. 
We're not going to cover every chapter in the book from the pulpit. Today's sermon is, is going to cover kind of the first two chapters. But that's where we'll be going for at least six to eight weeks. So you know. It's not enough to come to a person with real questions and go, well, let me just tell you my, give you my testimony. Let me give you my conversion story. Folks, Muslims have conversion stories. Mormons have conversion stories. What skeptics need to hear is the evidence that points to the truth that Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They need to know that there is evidence to support that. And when they come to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do you find? When you come to the, I, uh, these, these accounts of, of Jesus' miraculous conception and, and his birth and, and his life and his teaching and miracles and, and healing and, and raising of the dead and then his own torture and death on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sins, for all those who place faith in him, and then to rise again to show his power over death and his victory over Satan. When you read through those four, how do you know you can trust them to be true? And what our buddy J. Warner Wallace, this is what he did, he treated the gospel writers as he would treat any person who claimed to be an eyewitness to any crime. And he would just drill down on it. And Jim and I have become friends, and, and um, Jim and, uh, has also become friends with, with Megan. I, we've had Jim here twice. I want to get him back again, if for no other reason. It's worth the money for no other reason. Every time I go to pick up Jim at the Columbus airport, on the way back, it is two hours of Jay Warner Wallace and Megan Rawlings arguing with each other. And it's glorious. Absolutely glorious, because Jim's as much a smart aleck as I am, so it's, it's fun. But I knew as a former prosecutor, for those of you who've never been here before, by the way, my name is Matt. Um, I went to seminary, then I went to law school. So I'm an ordained minister, and I'm an attorney. So I have a special place in eternity no matter where I end up. And, but I spent um, my first kind of few years as a law student helping two of my professors with a federal death penalty case. I then spent a year as a prosecutor in upstate New York, and then I spent five years doing corporate defense work for a large firm in uh, Charleston and Huntington, West Virginia. Practicing law in West Virginia is a whole other sermon. Boy, is that interesting. Whew. You've never, ever, ever, ever really been to trial unless you've had a judge with a spittoon and a big chunk of Copenhagen in his mouth. But I knew Jim was right when I heard him talk, that how you have to evaluate witnesses. There are a couple things you have to do. The first one is something you can overlook, but you, it's, it's elementary, but you have to do it. How do we know they were there and they saw what they claimed to see? Can you put them at the scene? Because this is a shocker. I'm, as a lawyer, I'm telling you Christians, 
believe it or not, people lie. Swear. So you have to make sure they're at the scene. They, have to, they claim to be an eyewitness. How do we know you were there? And then the second one, is he or she a credible witness? Now, this is where the devil's in the details. Are they credible? How do you know? Well, we'll talk about that here in a second. Let me tell you how I first learned this the hard way. When I was in law school, I went to law school in upstate New York, and you had to, at the law school I went to, you had to take one of two clinics, they called them, a semester, a year-long thing where, you know, you actually had to go do lawyer stuff. You know, because the rest of the time you're just sitting there arguing with professors. You know, people don't understand law school. There's, law school, professors do not lecture in law school. Professors ask you questions. It's called the Socratic method. And no matter what answer you give, it's wrong. And you have to defend it. There was one professor I had, I kid you not, he was so nasty. He was a contracts professor. I counted five people in the first two weeks who ran out crying. And this one guy, he was so humiliated, he got up and just went, threw his books down, went to the bathroom. And we were outside talking about him. And it's like, is this going to get any better? Is this guy ever going to lighten up? And somebody said, well, this is cruel, but it's kind of funny. The one guy was, you, you know, uh, was not in the class, but he was listening to talk. He said, well, maybe you should feel sorry for the guy. Maybe he was abused as a child. The guy who was humiliated said, oh, I hope so. <laughs> So you had to take a, a, a clinic, and, and there was either the, uh, a clinic where you helped people get more government money, or you helped them you know, keep from getting evicted from their apartment or whatever, or there was the death penalty clinic. Me being who I am, I said, give me death penalty. And so I go and I meet with two of my professors, and there are a bunch of us, about 12 of us, and they've got about three or four cases, and they're going to assign each of us to different cases. And they wanted to give me some case like out in Kansas or Nebraska or something like that. But then they started running down the other cases. And they said, our second case, we're representing a young man who escaped from a jail along with an accomplice in Kentucky, made his way to northern Indiana, then into Ohio, where he stopped at some place called Portsmouth. And then they go to this place called Huntington, to a mall there, and then to Columbia, South Carolina, and Conway, South Carolina, back to West Virginia. Then one of them, the accomplice, was apprehended at the Ashland Town Center. And I'm raising my hand over there going, I think you should put me on this case. Why? I'm from Portsmouth. So they put me on the case. Next thing I know, I'm on a plane from Syracuse, New York, to Columbia, South Carolina, visit my client in jail. Never been in a jail before. And I walk in. It's just like you picture it. It's a cramped little space with a plexiglass divider and the dirty phones 
and then you talk through that. And I spent the next eight hours listening to this guy tell his story. Now, this was, this was 2002, 2003, so this is before these things and all kind of stuff, or iPads. So I had to take what's called a legal pad, and I had to write all this stuff down and get his story. Now, I'm very, very skeptical. I'm conservative as the day is long, and this guy has been charged with two heinous crimes that resulted in the death of two women. I, at that time, wanted to be a prosecutor, so I was not very sympathetic. But I listened, I questioned, wrote it all down. Now, here's what the next step you have to do. You have to reverse engineer it. You've got to go check the story out. So, there I am going to Huntington. I had to tell my professors before they came in. They, they came in to do a hearing, and I said, guys, a um, couple things. It's Huntington, and it's not Ironton, it's Arnton. And we are not passing Hurricane West Virginia, we're passing Hurricane. Just trust me. And so <clears throat> I'm in West Virginia, and I'm interviewing witnesses, and I'm you know, going through all of this. And one day, I was in Charleston eating lunch. My cell phone rang. Back then, those cell phones were about like this big, and they had an antenna on them. Remember those? And so I answer my phone, and it's one of my professors. And she says, wonderful Christian lady, by the way, and she says, Matt, I need you to go do something. I got three places I want you to go. I said, okay, and she gave me the general locations. I said, okay, I can find those in and around Huntington. I know that area pretty well. I said, what am I doing there? She said, you're looking for a body. The body had not been recovered. And this was very important because we believed, or they believed at that time, that my client was innocent of killing anyone. He was guilty of everything else, but not guilty of anything getting the death penalty, escaping prison, breaking and entering, stealing a car, all that kind of stuff. This guy was going to stay. We, we had no delusions about getting this guy off. It was, you know, it was, but did he commit the murder? And I'm walking through woods in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, by myself, looking for a corpse. And it hit me, having been on the case for several weeks at that point, that every single thing that criminal, who admitted to being a crook, behind that plexiglass barrier, every single thing he told me was matching up. Every single thing, the timeline, everything. And the other guys wasn't. So they were caught separately, so what happens when that happens? He did it. And then I started to look through the case file, and I started to meet with caseworkers and probation officers and all this other kind of stuff. And lo and behold, my client does not have any history of violence whatsoever. But the other guy? Lots of it. I was skeptical. I didn't want to believe him. 
But I think he was right. Anki told me the truth. Because everything matched up. And that's when you know a witness is credible. And so if you look at the witnesses who wrote the Gospels, what do you see? Matthew, and the entire, going way back to the first century, there's all kinds of evidence outside the Bible that everyone believed Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John. Matthew and John both were disciples of Jesus who were there from the beginning. Mark, all the evidence in church history says Mark just wrote down Peter's story. Well, Peter was there. Luke is the only one, Luke is the one who says, I wasn't there. But he tells you right at the beginning of his gospel, how did he put it together? Interviewing eyewitnesses. And so when you pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're not looking at stuff that anybody's claiming is myth. Myth are wild stories that, are, that ancient cultures use to explain stuff they can't explain. It's like there's a Native American tribe that, that tells the story that the, the world was formed by a giant beaver. And their thinking was back then that they see beavers make things, and so that's how they came up with creation. Now, that doesn't work out. But this is not myth. Everyone who's looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and studied it very seriously, they come away, if they know what myth is, they walk away and say, this is many things, but it ain't myth. It says, I saw. I saw Jesus walk, teach, heal. I saw him die. And I saw him rise again. Eyewitness testimony. And the church took this very, very seriously. If you look at Acts 1, 22 through 23, or 21 through 23, forgive me. Set the stage here. You know that Jesus had 12 disciples. Why did he choose 12 disciples? Because he was, it was a new Israel he was creating. It was a new people of God. To, so it reflects the 12 tribes. And so he has the 12 disciples. But then one of them, Judas, betrays him and takes his own life. And Peter knows they need 12. So he stands up after Jesus has ascended back to his heavenly throne. And he says to them, he said, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. They took it so seriously, they said, we can't have a 12th unless that person was an eyewitness to everything we need to proclaim about Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And we know that all the Gospels, an overwhelming majority of scholars will tell you that Jesus died sometime around 33 A.D., give or take could be as late as 35, but around there. And that 
the Gospels were all written within about 35 years of that event. Now, some of you are old enough to remember stuff that happened 35 years ago or longer. One of my earliest memories is of my brother Greg celebrating the fact that the saints, believe this or not, believe this or not, young people who believe this or not, when the Cincinnati Reds won back-to-back World Series. There was a time when they were worth watching. Ugh, not so much anymore. But I remember that. And so these things they're writing down are all within, for those of us who are older, a very short time. 35 years ago, I was taking driver's ed and learning to hate New Boston. Now, I married a girl from New Boston. If, you're, if you love New Boston, it's driving through New Boston that drives me crazy. So, these all, were, they were there. They had the possibility to be there. They claimed to be eyewitnesses. So then, what do you do? You have to test it out. Is their witness credible or not? All right. Let's look at a couple. Let's look at a couple test cases real quick. First one in Matthew 16, 23. Now, I need to set the stage for you again. In the ancient Near East where Israel was, it was what was called an honor-shame culture. So, if you wanted to be a higher-up, if you wanted to be very well-respected, it had very little to do with wealth. It had very little to do with your family name or that kind of stuff. In an honor-shame culture, if someone practiced the virtue of that culture, they were honored. They were considered a wise person, a reliable, trustworthy person. If they did shameful acts, they were rejected by the culture, by the community. You know, it's one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. You remember this? I talk about it all the time because I love it. King David, before he's king, he's on the run. He's being chased by King Saul. David is, is camped out with his men, and he's protecting this farm. And he's protecting it. He wasn't asked to do it. Remember, there's no police force or, or military at that time. And so he's protecting it, hoping that while he's on the run, this farmer will feed him and his men. That's all he's hoping for. Three meals a day. And in return, I'll make sure nobody takes your stuff. And the guy storms out and says, what are you doing? And he tells him, and he basically tells him to go pound sand. He said, I don't want you here. I don't know who you are. Get out of here. Now, at this point, David gets ticked off, and he's reaching for his sword. But the guy's wife runs out, and she says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't kill him. For his name is, and this is a loose translation of the Hebrew, moron. Now, it's not that there's something so shocking about a wife calling her husband a moron. I'm sure it's happened to me this week. But she says that's not her nickname for him. That's not, she's not saying, I just think he's being a moron right now. She says everybody calls him moron. Nobody called him anything else. That was his name in that town. It wasn't like he was born and his mother looked down and said, oh, moron. 
Everybody just named him that because in an honor-shame culture, he obviously did a lot of shameful things, and so that's how they referred to it. Now think about Peter. The disciple Peter is a Jew living in Israel in an honor-shame culture. And Jesus tells his disciples that he must go, turn himself over, he must be tortured, and he must die. And Peter says, I will not allow that to happen. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Matthew 16, 23, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. All right. What are the options we got here? The two major options are this. It happened. What the disciples said, they saw Jesus live, die, and rise again. They saw it, and it happened. Or they made it up. We'll talk more about that here in a second. If you're making it up in an honor-shame culture, in a Jewish society, how much of a good idea do you think it is to have yourself referred to as Satan? If they're making this up, Peter's over there going, hey, let's take that part out. We don't, we don't need that. Doesn't make any sense. John 20, here's another one. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. These, sto these stones, by the way, we found many of them. Uh, archaeologists have found them. They, they're about a ton and a half. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. John is writing this, and that's how he refers to himself. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. I love this part. Remember, John's writing this. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that John had to put in there, I'm faster than Peter. He stopped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. In other words, his grave wrappings. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Don't have time for that today. But, Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Now, I always loved that little, I loved that she thought he was the gardener. Why? Because Paul tells us Jesus is the new Adam. What was Adam's job? Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbanai, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord, and then she gave him his message. Why is that so significant? There are a lot of things there we could touch on, but the biggest one is this. Guess who in ancient Israel could not testify in court? Women. If you're making this up, why would you do that? Also, again, honor shame. They're claiming this is the Messiah. And who does the Messiah choose to reveal himself to? His beloved disciples? No, a woman who was rumored to have been a prostitute. If you're making this up, you're doing a really bad job of it. Doesn't work. Again and again and again and again. What this looks like is reliable eyewitness testimony. There's one other test for credibility. Do they change their story? Does their story change over time? There's a wonderful but expensive book by a guy by the name of Sean McDowell on the fate of the disciples. What happened to the disciples? We don't, you know, the Bible doesn't include the fate of every one of the disciples. But we do have church history. We know that Matthew was killed, speared. We know that the only one of the original 11 who lived to have a natural death was John. All the rest of them were tortured and killed. And they were all tortured and killed with this. Renounce what you are preaching, that Jesus is Lord, that you saw him rise again and will let you live. And all of them said, I would rather die. Boiled in oil, skinned alive. In the case of Peter, we know he was crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to be crucified as was his Lord. Now, you know, we don't do this in our criminal justice system, hopefully, not anywhere. But in brutal places like Russia, if they got an eyewitness and they're trying to see if they're telling the truth, you know what they do? They stick a gun to their head. Change your story, or I shoot. And that's how they determine if the person is telling the truth. Every single one of the disciples, even the disciples of the disciples. One early student of John in the early second century was crucified and wasn't dying quick enough. So they put kindling all around him and said, we're going to burn you alive if you don't announce right here, right now in front of all these people that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. And he looked at them and he said, my Lord would never abandon me. I will not turn my back on him. And he was burned alive. Think you can trust that kind of testimony? You'll encounter a lot of arguments, a lot of silly things, especially this time of year and Christmas. All those shows on like A&E or the History Channel or stuff like that about Jesus, don't waste your time. They're awful. Absolutely 
awful. I'll tell you how I know why. I was at a Society of Biblical Literature meeting in Dallas, Texas, and yes, it's as fun as it sounds. And there was a guy there speaking who was kind of notorious because he'd been writing books since the 50s, and every single one of his books were, shall we say, a little different, a little odd. And so he's almost like a circus attraction. Everybody just wanted to hear what the guy had to say because he was going to debate with this other guy. And he was actually in the hotel room across from me, and I ran into him in the elevator one time, so I struck up a conversation. And I asked him about these shows. He goes, let me tell you something about those shows. He said, what do you tell people in your congregation? I said, I tell them not to watch it. He said, that's good. He said, I'll tell you why. He said, they come to me, they come to me at least two or three times, and they said, we want you to be on our special program on this biblical issue or this biblical issue for A&E or PBS or whatever. And he says, okay, um, I'll do it because my kids and grandkids love to see me on TV, but you need to know something. I even know my scholarly opinions, I'm the only one that holds them. 99.9% of biblical scholarship think I'm goofy. And they're like, no, 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 it's okay. We'll interview you for about a half an hour, but we may only use a minute. Okay, why not? They interviewed him for half an hour. They used 25 minutes of it. And they put it forward as mainstream scholarship. Baloney. Don't buy it. They get the kooks and the weirdos because ratings. It draws more viewers that way. But you're not going to learn anything from it. And you'll see somebody like John Dominic Crossan is one of them, a guy who got kicked out of the Catholic church, uh, not for anything immoral, but because he was too weird. I did not think that was possible, folks. Because I can show you some Catholic scholars over the years that, wow. And John Dominic Crossan has this idea that, that Jesus never rose from the grave. Um, the disciples may have hallucinated it together. Huh? You don't share hallucinations, folks. Your hallucinations are your own. Your own thoughts do not transmit. We're not, we're not like Vulcans in Star Trek that can do this. I mean, we don't, that's not how it works. I don't wake up in the morning, look over at Megan and go, what did you think of the dream we had last night? And they put this guy on TV. Ugh. Last but not least, you have to look at the motivations of the people purporting to tell a story. Now, if the disciples lied about what they say they witnessed in a court of law, we call that perjury, which is a jailable offense. Detective Wallace says, and I agree with him, there are only three three big categories for motivations for committing such crime, any crime, including perjury. One is money. Two is sex. Three is, and this has hosts a whole bunch, everything from revenge to everything, power. Revenge is a power move. Money, sex, and power. Let's look at the disciples' motivations for writing the gospel, shall we? Money? Are you kidding me? 
Paul was rich. And he lost everything. They were so ostracized. These guys were fishermen and so forth. They lost their jobs. They lost their businesses. They lost family. And it's not like they, they, they were, the Roman Empire had TV where they could become a TV evangelists. Offer to sell you some kind of COVID cure or something like one of them did. There was no money in it for them. It cost them money. Sex? I'll try to say this delicately since there's some youngins present. In the Roman Empire, which is where Paul and Peter and the boys went out to plant churches, it was not only legal, it was encouraged. The uh, oldest profession in the books, prostitution. One Roman historian said, every distinguished Roman gentleman has a wife, a mistress, and a favorite prostitute. And you had this guy named Paul come along and say, you must, to be a Christian, especially to be a Christian leader, you must be a one-woman man. In Timothy and Titus, it's exactly what it says. He's not saying, he's not talking about whether you've, you know, been married before or widowed or any of that other kind. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that the prostitutes, the mistresses, gone. Can't do it. That's not going to get you a lot of ladies, is it? Number three, power. What power? They were considered a sect that was hunted by the Roman Empire. They were persecuted. Thrown to lions. The things that Nero did to Christians, I can't repeat in mixed company. There's no power. There's only one motivation. They believed it. And they'd rather die than deny it. I people asked me this last night, so before we wrap up, I'll tell you, no, I never did find that body. I don't think anyone ever will for reasons I won't go into. We have an imperfect criminal justice system. My client was sentenced to death, as was the guy he ran away from jail from. We polled the jury. Uh, if you don't know what that means, that means you can ask the judge, can we talk to the jury once they delivered the verdict and ask them why they came to the verdict they did. So we polled the jury. One juror said, well, they were both white trash, so who cares? It's an imperfect system. But I'm telling you that what I'm presenting to you today is eyewitness testimony with no motivation other than they believed it. And if you can trust that testimony, that means Jesus lived, Jesus preached, 
among what he preached is the only way to heaven, the only way to God is through him. That he healed. That he performed many miracles. But astounded even the disciples. Scared them at times. If you learn to uh, read Greek, not that I advise it, you'll see that when Jesus stills the storm, the storm doesn't just go away. The water becomes absolutely still instantaneously. And that freaked them out. He was killed. He rose again. He ascended. He will return. It's eyewitness testimony that you can trust. And because we can trust it, we know on this day, the tomb is empty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of your spirit, you gave the men who gave us the Bible the courage to proclaim what they witnessed. We have it. We can study it. We can test it. We can trust it. We can know that for those here who have faith, their faith is not built on emotion, or, but on evidence, on truth. We know that your son rose again, showing that he could conquer death. And for those who have faith in him, he will conquer it for us as well and raise us up. We celebrate that today. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Have a great Easter. Eat way too much. You can hit the gym tomorrow. Don't talk politics with your family. God bless you. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.